Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning on the show. Now, last week, we looked at some of the presidential actions that were taking place regarding executive orders on the topics of immigration, climate change, things like that. But there are plenty of other news sources, podcasts, things like that that address federal or national items. And since this podcast is hosted in Pennsylvania, and as a citizen of Pennsylvania, I like to also focus on more local or state-level legislation, things like that, that are taking place. And so today, I'm going to review uh, Governor Wolf's proposal for an increase to the minimum wage. He gave this uh, briefing, this proposal, last week, and so I had some time to uh, listen to it, review it, analyze it, and I want to play it for you today and provide some commentary, some critique, some interaction. It's only about 15 minutes long, uh, so uh, it might be a little bit more than a half-hour show today, but uh, I think it'll be very interesting, very useful, and uh, certainly relevant for those of you who are uh, listening to the show and also reside in Pennsylvania. But before we dive into that, I want to cover our law of the day, which is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, with a parallel law in Deuteronomy 24, uh, verses 14 and 15. So here's the, here's the law from Leviticus. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And then here's the uh, verse from Deuteronomy. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Before we take a look at some of the uh, context here, there's a related passage. It's a proverb. In in Proverbs 3.28, it says this, Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So, in ancient Israel, many people lived day to day, working all day in the fields with the expectation that they would get paid at, in, the, in the evening so they could go home to their families and buy whatever they needed. So it was a, it was a day's wages. So, I mean, and there was, there was a, a general expectation of what a day's wages were. Now, the, the wickedness that this law is talking about is when employers would hold on to the wages, landowners or whatever, would hold the wages and would not pay them in a timely manner. And maybe, maybe it was because they didn't want to pay or they didn't have the money to pay and they just wanted the work and they're just promising that they're going to pay them sometime in the future or whatever the case may be, uh, any kind of delayed payment was evil. It could be due to the employer being incompetent. You know, he he hires all these people and they do all this work for him. But when the day's over, he actually doesn't have the money to pay them all. Well, that would be an act of incompetence on his part and still a violation of the law. Or even if he's just trying to um, get all the labor that he can from them and he's already planning to deliberately not pay them, of course, that would be just as much a violation of the law. So, anyways, the laborer expected to be paid on that day. He was counting on it and was planning on it. So, so what's some application for us as we take a look at this law? 
And it really comes down to keeping promises and maintaining contracts. Whatever the employer promises to pay, the employee should get that if the work is done. Employers should not make excuses or try to uh, weasel their way out of it. Employers should also be wise and, and plan ahead to, and not make promises that they can't keep. So, you know, if they, if they hire someone and they make a promise to pay them, they need to follow through on that and they need to know that they actually have the money to do it uh, in, in the future when that labor is complete. But this contract does, um, it does go both ways and it has an implication for the worker also. You see, because the workers, they should not expect payment until the work is done at the end of the day. So they don't, they don't demand payment before the work is done. At the same time, the laborers should also honor the contract and not seek to change the terms after the fact. Perhaps one of the best examples of this in action is the parable given by Jesus, uh, the parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And here's what Jesus says. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. All right, so this is a lot in this parable. But the primary application here is that those who get saved, okay? So there are some people who are saved young, and they do a lot of work for the kingdom of God. They serve God, love God as Christians, right? But then obviously we know that there are people who on their deathbed, become believers or towards the end of their life. Now the, now, the interesting thing is, is that they all get to go to heaven. They all get to become citizens of the kingdom and ushered into the presence of God. So is that fair per se? Well, that's the question, right? And and God is merciful here. So the context here though, that, that Jesus is trying to explain this using a story uh, like this with regards to uh, management of property. And here's the thing. The master of the house made a contract with the workers on, at the beginning of the day. You work for me for the day, and I pay you a denarius. This was the expected wage, and they were all fine with it. Now, one other thing to keep in mind is that if the owner is trying to get his job done in that day, 
okay? Because maybe there's some bad weather coming or whatever, so you have to harvest in one fell swoop. You have to harvest all the grapes uh, and at that time. You can't just keep letting them sit on the vine if it's harvest time because maybe there is uh, something coming, you know, whether it's uh, some kind of uh, bad weather coming or whatnot that's going to uh, prevent uh, you from harvesting tomorrow. So whatever the case may be, if he sees that there's more work to be done and he needs more workers, well, he's allowed to hire more. And he even says uh, to these people standing by, you know, I'm going to offer you a job. Now, he doesn't say to them how much he's going to pay them. He simply says, um, I'll give you what is right. Okay, so so now they're kind of at his mercy. They've kind of left it open. They're probably not even expecting to get a full denarius because they're not they're not working a full day. Um, but whatever the case may be, they're putting themselves in trust into the owner's hands. They're they're going to get paid something, but the later workers don't know whether it's going to be a denarius or not. So at the end of the day, the owner is allowed to pay in accordance with his contract that he made. So he starts with the with the guys who hired last, and he chooses to be merciful. And, and in, in a sense, those later workers are getting paid more per hour than the first workers are. But why is that? Well, maybe the owner has a desire to get the work done faster, and maybe he realized that towards the end of the day that there's so much more to be done. I need I need workers. And so in his mind, their labor is more valuable uh, because of the, the critical timeliness of the situation. But he's also being very generous. He chooses to, to pay them a full days of labor, even though they didn't expect it. He didn't promise it. He's being generous. And of course, he's the owner. He can give his money to whoever he wants to. He can give it away. He can... He can give it all to one person out of charity. The only thing he's obligated to do is to keep his promises, his contract. And he does with the first uh, people who are hired. But, of course, when they see that somebody else is getting the same as them uh, for less work, you know, in their minds, uh, they are envious and they're covetous. So they're falling into sin there. So anyways, the point of all of it is that this law and then the application and, and, and the imagery that Jesus uses in the parable uh, goes to show that it's, it's, the law is not speaking about you know minimum wage or anything like that. It's speaking about keeping your promises, maintaining your contracts, and honoring your commitments, whatever commitments you made. So and that is our law of the day. And, it's, and, I, and I picked that one because it is quite relevant to what we're going to see with Governor Wolf's proposal for the minimum wage increase. You're going to hear a lot of moral language, and I want you to pay very close attention to that because it um, is very much important uh, to discern, well, what's the basis for this, uh, this decision? What's the moral foundation that he is, um, is making here? So uh, with that, let's begin. Thank you, Kevin, and, and thank you, uh, Senator Tartaglione, uh, Representative Kim, and, and Mr. Leonard, thank you for, for joining me. Um, my legislative agenda for next year, as I announced it in, in my budget presentation, has one overarching goal, and that is to get rid of barriers that hold Pennsylvanians back. One of the most important things that we can do to help workers and businesses and our, in fact, our economy, is to raise the minimum wage in Pennsylvania. 
because right now the minimum wage in our Commonwealth is not a livable wage. Pennsylvania's minimum wage is $7.25 per hour, and that has not increased in over 10 years. During that time, of course, we all know, the cost of food has gone up, gas has gone up, just about everything else has gone up. In fact, since the last time the minimum wage was increased, its purchasing power has dropped by nearly 17%. All right, I want to pause there because uh, he hit on a couple assumptions and endpoints that I uh, would take issue with and would want you to kind of catch. So he says that his first goal is to eliminate barriers that hold people back. Well, the funny thing is that a lot of people never consider the fact that government could be a barrier, that some of the government's policies are the problem here. So, you know, if we're going to if we're going to look at barriers that hold people back, we need to put all the options on the table. Then he goes on to say that it's currently not a livable wage. It's about $7.25 an hour and has not increased in 10 years. Well, the assumption that he's making here is that it should be a livable wage. The assumption is that a person with a minimum wage job should be able to support an entire family on just that job. Also, there's an assumption here that employers only ever pay the minimum and never more than that because he's not giving us data on, well, you know, even though the minimum wage in Pennsylvania is $7.25, well, how many Pennsylvanians are actually being paid that? Like, how, how many employers are actually doing that and not paying people more than that? So there's some kind of an assumption going on here that whatever the minimum wage is, that is what employers are always paying their workers, the bare possible minimum. And this kind of vilifies the uh, employers in this regard, assuming that they are essentially evil, you know, oppressive, uh, things like that. So we don't know, he doesn't give us the details on that yet, the actual numbers. And now, lastly here, even though the government has not raised the minimum wage in 10 years, that does not mean that people have not been getting more money. You see, and this is the, another problem with this, this whole concept here, is because it sounds like, whoa, man, I mean, someone has been getting minimum wage for 10 years? Well, well hold on a second. The, the people that were getting seven twenty-five an hour 10 years ago are not the same people today. I mean, they really shouldn't be. If you work at a job for 10 years, I'm, I'm pretty certain that if you're even at minimally competent and show up to work on time, you are getting paid more than that today. So it's not the same people. It's, it's a constant rotation. There's people that, that start at the minimum wage and then they graduate out of that. They grow out of that. They move on to other things. And then, there's, and then there's new individuals that come onto the marketplace who start at the minimum wage. So even though the wage itself, the, 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 the line has not been raised in 10 years, that does not mean that the same people are getting minimum wage today as they were 10 years ago. That group has changed. People have gotten older. Some people have died. Some people have, have come onto the scene. So that's something that we need to... Uh, consider here. All right, well, let's let's continue and hear what he has to say about uh, purchasing power. That means for a mom working a full-time minimum wage job trying to take care of her kids, it gets harder and harder each year to afford the things that she and her family needs, food, clothing, rent, medicine. Every year, every single year, these things get a little bit more expensive. 
and the money she earns doing the same hard work she did the year before covers a little bit less. And that's how Pennsylvania's minimum wage forces families to keep living in poverty. The COVID-19 pandemic has made raising the minimum wage more important than ever before. I want to stop there because he said he said some pretty, uh, very strong language, some strong things there. So the purchasing power has dropped by 17% is what he says. And then cost of living has gone up without an increase in wages. Well, that's another assumption there. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so that we would agree that the cost of living has gone up. But, but I'm sure that those folks who were working 10 years ago, that their wages have probably gone up since then in the past 10 years. So to say that wages have not increased is kind of misleading. Yes, the minimum wage has not increased, but that doesn't mean that each person in 10 years ago, their wages have not increased since then. And he says the purchasing power has dropped by 17%. Well, now, now, why is that? So no one asks a question as to why is there a cost of living increase? Why has inflation gone up? Well, what if the government, some of its policies are causing that? Oh, I don't know, printing money, you know, things like that, going into debt. What if the government is contributing towards the problem of inflation? But now they're saying, hey, we're here to solve that problem of inflation. How do you know it's not going to cause more problems than it's going to solve? And then he mentions the single mom trying to support a family, food, clothing, rent, medicine. But again, these, these minimum wage jobs aren't intended to, if, if you're getting paid minimum wage, intended to support a family of, I don't know, four or five or whatever on just that job. And he says it forces families to keep living in poverty. Now, that's also not fair because, again, he's assuming that, let's say the mother in this case, never gets a raise by by the employer. But the fact is that if she works hard and is just it goes to work on time very diligent, she becomes more valuable to the employer and she can she can become more marketable, she can get another job from a different employer if that employer won't raise her 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 payments, things like that. Uh and, and the wage like he speaks of the wage as um as a person, as if it's forcing someone to live in poverty. And again, this assumes that employers are evil and that they will never give anything more than the minimum wage. Uh, but the fact is that if someone shows skill and work ethic, they increase the value that they provide, and they can demand more money and become more marketable and can look for other jobs. So uh, anyways, there are a couple of assumptions that, that Governor Wolf is making that are very problematic here and, and concerning. Well, let's continue. Over the past year, we have seen how critical the jobs are essential workers perform. How, how critical those jobs are. These are the Pennsylvanians who put themselves at risk to perform the crucial tasks that we now know more than ever keep our society running. These are the ones who keep food on the shelves in our grocery stores. They get crucial supplies where they need to go. They take care of our kids. And they support people with disabilities. Thousands, thousands of these folks earned poverty wages. In fact, many of the most important jobs Ironically, you're also some of the lowest paying jobs, and that simply is not right. More than three quarters of essential workers are adults. One in five are parents. Essential workers are moms with kids, seniors trying to supplement their retirement savings in the face of the skyrocketing cost of living. They're hard workers, and they're doing hard jobs who deserve to make a living wage in return for their labor. Let's stop for a second there. Okay. He, he covered a couple points. First, uh, he talks about 
uh, the essential workers. Okay, and, and they do these important jobs, right? So what's interesting here is he listed out all the things that they do, and I'm not going to disagree with him. They're, they're very important jobs. And he, he says that they're, them earning less money or them earning you know, poverty-level wages is simply not right. So this has now become a discussion of values. What we need to understand, though, is that people get paid because of the value that they provide, the perceived value. Okay, So each employer has a need. And the worker supplies that need. Each person perceives their own value, perhaps differently. And they come to a negotiated agreement and work together. Uh, I do real estate on the side. And it's kind of like real estate too, because every homeowner thinks that their home is worth more than it is. And, and every buyer thinks that the home is less than it is, than it's, than it's being listed at on the market. So who's right? Okay, so um, I might think that my home is worth, I don't know, $400,000. Okay, so I, I, list it, I list it for that on the market. Someone else comes along and wants to buy it. They think it's only worth three fifty. Who's right? Well, the, the, the answer is that there is no right answer about that. There is no reference that we can use. Because at the end of the day, the value of a home is what someone is willing to pay for it. And even if you look at the neighboring properties and you and you get an estimate of what other houses that are like it go for that that price, if the buyer sees something that really catches their eye, something that they really want that's unique to that house, that's going to change their evaluation. They're going to pay more for that house. So, and what, what they always used to say in real estate, you know, someone says, uh, I ask, how much is my house worth? Well, it's, it's worth about as much as someone will pay for it. And it's kind of a joke, right? Because to declaratively say that your house is worth this much money is to speak outside your lane. It's to speak as if you're God, as if you can place a value on something that is objective and universally true. But the fact of the matter is, the way God designed our world to work is that one person, the buyer, comes and meets with the seller, the other person, and they have to negotiate. And at the end of the day, the final agreement of the price, that's the value. Like at that moment, that becomes the value of the home when that transaction takes place. So it comes down to a perception of value between the buyer and the seller. It's a negotiated agreement. Okay, now moving on to healthcare. As demand increases, okay, so demand for healthcare workers, they will be able to get higher wages through negotiation or through competition. But at the same time, as the supply of healthcare workers, you know, there's more doctors, more nurses, all these folks, as that increases, then the demand will drop because an employer has a huge pool of people to choose from. So that's going to end up dropping wages. And also, we need to keep in mind that the values of society are reflected in the wages that are earned by the people living in that society. So, for example, sports athletes and actors make the most money in our culture. Is that wrong? Is that right? Because that's what our society values at this time. And no one can say whether that's wrong or right. I mean, you might have an opinion about that. You might think in your mind, well, why is this an actor or a quarterback make more money than a brain surgeon? Isn't a brain surgeon doing more important things? Aha, you just placed your value system onto the economy. In your mind, 
brain surgeons are more useful and do more good for the society than actors and quarterbacks. Now, unless you are appealing to some ethical standard outside of yourself, some objective moral standard, that is simply your opinion, okay? Now, I think that there is an objective moral standard, which is obviously God's law, scripture, but God's law does not tell us how much you have to pay somebody for a particular item, all right? It does come down to that negotiated perceived value between the buyer and the seller. But if Governor Wolf is going to lament that those people are not getting paid what they deserve in his mind, well, that's an issue of value with the society. And we need to ask the question, well, what does our society value? Now, Governor Wolf here is saying that society's values are wrong. And maybe they might be, maybe they might be wrong. But he's also saying that the employer's valuation of the worker is wrong. That that basically like hospitals and, and medical facilities, they are not valuing their workers enough. Okay, so Governor Wolf is saying, all you all you business owners out there, you are wrong. You grocery store owners, you are wrong. Your valuation of their labor is not correct. He's also saying, by the way, that the employee's valuation of themselves is wrong. So, for example, if you have a high school student who is working at at a grocery store and he agrees to $8 an hour, which is a little bit above the minimum wage, but let's say he agrees to $8 an hour. He, you know, the uh, the Wegmans or the or the giant uh, a grocery store owner comes to him and says, uh, would you like a job? Sure, I'd like a job. What do you want to pay? Uh, how about $8 an hour? And the high school student says, oh, man, that's, that's, that sounds pretty darn good. Yeah, let's do that. I'll do that. So he does that. And Governor Wolf is here saying, eh, eh, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, it needs to be higher than that. It needs to be 12. It needs to be 12. And basically, Governor Wolf is saying to the high school student, your valuation of your own labor is also incorrect. So not only is the worker incorrect in agreeing to that wage, but the employer is incorrect for offering that wage. And so Governor Wolf, big government here, is going to step in and save the day and bring its own valuation to the equation. But the funny thing is, is that what makes his valuation more accurate than the grocery store owner and the high school student? You see, the high school student knows his own skills and desires and motivations and work ethic. The grocery store owner knows uh, the demand that he has, his needs, and what you know, his field of what he's working in. So both these people have more information about themselves in order to come to a negotiated agreement. The government does not have that information. He's just going to come in there blindly and just say, uh, no, you're both wrong. This is what it needs to be. And again, that is a purely uh, subjective valuation. And there's, there's nothing to suggest that Governor Wolf has the expertise uh, to do that, what is his standard? What 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 objective standard is he using to to add value or to give value or to declare value uh, uh, on a, either a worker or the employer's uh, a value of that worker? Now he goes on to say that they are doing uh, hard jobs that deserve to earn a, li- a living wage, that they deserve better. Again, this is pure speculation by Governor Wolf. What's his standard? He says that they deserve to earn a living wage. Well, who are you to say that? You, you can't say that you deserve... Some, man, go back to that parable. Those workers that were hired at the beginning, they they begrudged the owner. And they said, 
We deserve, we deserve more. And the owner's like, well, wait, wait a minute. We agreed to what was owed and what was paid. Why do you want to change the terms now? I, I, I don't understand that. So everyone thinks that they deserve more. Like I said, everyone thinks that their home is worth more than it, than it probably is, right? I mean, I don't know the exact number, but, but sellers always have a higher number in mind for what they're going to get for their house. And buyers have a lower number. And almost never do they match without some kind of negotiation taking place. Someone has to go up, someone has to come down. So it's somewhere in the middle, right? Now, employers are the ones who decide how much money to offer for a particular labor. And employees decide, so the worker decides whether their labor is that value or not. So it comes down to supply and demand, all right? So I'll give another example. Think of actors, right? Like, uh, you know, George Clooney or Bill Murray or whatever. There are only one of those actors, okay? There's only one of them. And if a movie producer wants them in his movie, he has to offer a valuation. If they agree to that valuation, then they become part of the cast of the film. But if they overvalue themselves, if they demand more money, then the movie director will reject it and they won't get the job. Or if the movie director offers them less, they're going to say no unless the movie producer, director increases that offer to meet their bare minimum of their valuation. But no one can say that either the movie producer or the actor is wrong, okay? Everyone looking at the situation might disagree with the decision, but their views are not any more valid than, let's say, Governor Wolf's views. So why are, why are his views more valid than the employer's and the employee's values? All right, let's continue. Our Commonwealth's essential workers deserve better. That's the point. They deserve a livable wage, and the sad thing is they could earn more doing the same job in 29 other states that have already raised the minimum wage, including all of Pennsylvania's neighboring states in this part of the country. Other states, including red states, red states like Florida, are already on a path to $15 per hour. The point is Pennsylvania workers are being left behind, and all of us, all of us are suffering for it. Okay, well, all right. First of all, he says they could earn more doing the same job in 29 other states. But this, keep this in mind. This assumes a couple things. First of all, this assumes, again, that all of our essential workers are only getting the minimum wage and nothing more. But he doesn't tell us how many. We don't know. He's not giving us information. Another thing to keep in mind, what if our average wages are higher than those other states? So, for example, our minimum wage is $7.25. That's to say that another state has $15 minimum wage. But we still don't know the answer to the question. You know, our minimum wage might be very low, but there might be hardly anybody who's getting paid that, you know? If we haven't changed the minimum wage, you know, since the, I don't know, early half of the 20th century, maybe our minimum wage would be $2 an hour. But even if it, even if it were, there's, there, those workers aren't getting $2 an hour today. So we need to look at what they're getting paid, what they're actually getting paid now. That's what, that's what we need to look at. So just because one state has a higher minimum wage and our state has a lower minimum wage, if all of the workers in that state get paid the minimum wage, let's say it's 15, but our workers on average get paid $16 an hour, even though we have a lower minimum wage, that means our workers are getting paid more in general than that other state. So we need to look at apples to apples, not apples to oranges. Additionally, 
what about the higher cost of living in some other states? Now, he's going to mention, you know, the states around us, of course. But, you know, New York might have a higher cost of living, and certainly California does. So does that minimum wage, like, what is the purchasing power comparison there? It's not just sheer numbers of dollars per hour. Okay, so anyways. And then the last thing he says is um, our workers are being left behind. Again, this is language of suffering and and being left behind. And so the question is, do do you think that the solution is government intrusion? rather than letting the market fix itself and address the issue itself. Um, If other states, even red states, join in bad ideas, does that mean we should follow them? This is not a red state, blue state issue here. If a red state makes a bad decision, you shouldn't follow them in the bad decision. So, you know, don't be the lemmings that follow them off the cliff here. All right, let's continue. This isn't about pitting workers against business owners because businesses also stand to benefit from a higher minimum wage. Increasing the minimum wage puts more money into the pockets of workers, which gives local businesses, businesses all across Pennsylvania, more customers. Boosting wages also increases productivity because it decreases turnover. Raising the minimum wage allows Pennsylvanians to work their way out of poverty. It saves tax dollars. It helps local communities, and that's why I'm proposing that we increase Pennsylvania's minimum wage to $12 per hour effective July 1st, 2021, this year, with increases of 50 cents each year until the minimum wage reaches $15 per hour on July 1st, 2027. All right. Uh, he made a couple of statements that I need to go over here. Uh, a lot. There's so much baggage in, in these statements. He says, first of all, it's not about pitting workers against business owners. But we've already seen that he's kind of vilified the business owners. I mean, that's a necessary consequence here. You're telling business owners that their valuation of the labor is wrong. And you're telling workers that their labor is worth more than what they're currently being paid at. So you're telling workers that businesses are essentially lying to them or oppressing them. But this only seeks to increase strife. So you can you can say that, you're, oh, I'm not trying to pit workers against business owners, but you are. Like, by definition, you are. Then he would say uh, that uh, businesses would benefit by having to pay more money to workers. And now, all right, this whole line of reasoning requires some serious mental gymnastics and silliness. One way to simplify these things is to follow the money. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. In the military, when we studied aircraft and their systems, like the fuel system, we would often just follow one fuel molecule and and trace it all throughout the system to kind of understand where it came from and where it was going and how the system functions. You can kind of do the same thing here with regards to the minimum wage. So let's do a little some thought experiments here. If you raise the minimum wage, you're essentially putting a gun behind the employer forcing them to pay more money, right? So they have a couple options here. They can either pay more money to all their workers or they can cut hours. So, you know, they're trying to keep their money. So they have to cut hours or they have to cut workers. Okay, they they can't hire that many workers because they can only hire so much or they have to cut expenditures. Okay, essentially tighten the belt, uh, you know, spend less money, keep the workers, but but cut other places if you can, or raise prices. They need more more money in order to do that. Okay, so, you know, you don't just create money out, of, money out of thin air. So these are the options that they have. If you cut worker hours, if you cut the hours, the total amount of money in the system has not increased. 
Okay, those workers don't have more money to spend in the community. They had their hours cut. So it doesn't increase the overall supply of money. If you cut workers completely, again, the total amount of money in the system has not increased because the workers can't buy anything because they have no jobs. So it doesn't actually help the community. It doesn't cause people to spend more money because they don't have the money because they don't have a job. That's one, one issue. Also, if you cut expenditures, if you tighten the belt, you can't expand your business. You can't add new locations. You can't get bigger stores. You can't hire more workers or trucks or buy more supplies. You can't spend more money either as a business. Uh, so, so, so again, maybe your workers can spend more. Maybe if you just if you just pay them more and you sacrifice yourself and tighten your own belt. But you're as a business, you're not spending more in the community, so you're not contributing. Uh, any more to the system, if you will. So again, there's no uh, increased money to the system. You're not investing more money into the community. All right, and then the last one, if you raise prices, you are simply requiring more money. You're, you're getting money from the community to, to pay for the same product. So it actually hurts the customers, right? So you pay people more, but everything costs more. You can't increase the amount of money in the community like that. It doesn't work that way. So it doesn't increase expenditures and things like that. So uh, anyways, and then he says that it increases productivity by reducing turnover. And by that, he means the firing and the hiring. Um, this is also another false assumption because just because you are forced to pay someone 12 bucks an hour does not mean that their labor is worth that. So if, if you as a, as a business owner, if you value someone's labor, you're going to try to keep them. If you don't value someone's labor, you will try to replace them or pay them less. And then he says it allows them to work their way out of poverty. Well, again, poverty is not just a function of the minimum wage <laughs> because it also depends on their spending habits and their skills. Your wage is just one small variable in the equation regarding poverty. How you spend your money and your work ethic are also even more important variables. So a person already can work their way out of poverty. The minimum wage does not prevent you from doing that. It's, it's not saying that you have to only make that money and you can never make more. The minimum wage is not a ceiling. It's a floor. So people can get more and do get more than that. All right, so, and then and then he says that at the end here, before he goes into the details, that it saves tax dollars. I'm not sure where that comes from, but I guess we'll find out uh, here shortly. Increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour will give more than 1 million hardworking Pennsylvanians a raise. I think it's 1.1 million. No one who works hard in Pennsylvania should be living in poverty, period. Oh, okay, well, all right. So it will give more than 1 million workers a raise. So he gave us his first numbers here. All right, so this assumes that there's 1 million people in Pennsylvania that are getting minimum wage. All right, assuming assuming that none of their hours get cut and that none of them get laid off, where does that magical money come from? I mean, think about that. You just, you're raising um, a million workers by about five bucks an hour. Okay, so, so that's going to be a $5 million per hour increase. It has to come from someone. So we need to find $5 million per hour from somewhere in Pennsylvania. 
Well, who, who's it, where's it coming from? It has to come from the businesses. Okay, where do they get the money from? Well, unless they just have that money lying around, they're going to have to take some drastic steps. Okay, they're going to have to, like I said, raise prices. Or if they don't have that money lying around, they will have to cut workers and cut hours. So it's not going to help anybody. Okay, the money doesn't come out of thin air. It doesn't it just, just magically appear. It comes from somebody. And in this case, it's coming from all the um, business owners. Um, and they're going to have to get it from somewhere too. All right. Then he gets on to say that no one who works hard in PA should be living in poverty. Okay. <laughs> Here's the other thing to keep in mind. Hard work is not the only variable when it comes to poverty. All right. If you overspend what you have, you will not do very well, even if you work hard. And hard work depends also on the job you are doing. So let me give you an example. What if I told you that I wanted to work as a shoe cobbler or a wagon wheel repairman? All right. These jobs are very hardworking jobs. Take a lot of skill, a lot of time, a lot of effort. But here's the thing. You, you would probably expect me to not make much money as a shoe cobbler and a wagon wheel repairman. Um, because things have changed in our society, all right? Now we have automobile mechanics and things like that. So working hard, just because a job is hardworking, doesn't mean it, it, it has high value. It depends on what it, you're doing, okay? If I spend my whole day cobbling shoes and making wagon wheels, that, that's, that's not going to get paid very much, unless I'm some kind of antique owner or something like that, like a very niche market maybe. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to get much for that. And I can complain all day long that, oh, I'm working so hard, backbreaking work. Okay, yeah, but are you working harder or smarter? That's the question. I'm not saying that grocery store workers and medical personnel are not doing a useful job. They are. I'm, chim I'm simply pointing out though that Hard work, you know, the the ethereal concept of hard work is not the only thing that that gets you out of poverty. It's not that's not the only variable in the equation. So just because you work hard at something doesn't mean that you're going to get paid. All right, it, it depends on on the valuation. It depends on uh, the market that you're that you're living in. Let's continue. I'm pleased that the Biden administration also sees the importance of ensuring that workers earn a living wage. But Pennsylvania cannot wait for the federal government to act. We have a responsibility right here to the workers right here in Pennsylvania. And we must act now, right here in Pennsylvania, to raise our minimum wage. So I implore the leadership of the General Assembly to listen to the needs of ordinary Pennsylvanians. Raising the minimum wage will help workers. It will bring more money into local businesses. It will stimulate our economy, but most importantly, it is the right thing to do. Thank you. Now I'm going to turn. All right. I want to stop there uh, as far as uh, Governor Wolf goes. Um, he, you know, he just says he can't wait for the federal government to act. Listen to the needs of ordinary people. It is the right thing to do. Again, pay attention to that moral language. It is the right thing to do. Uh, but again, by what standard? Who says it is the right thing to do? Why are you correct? The language of ordinary citizens, to say that, well, ordinary citizens, this is what they need. That, that, that implies a division, a class division, basically saying that, well, those who disagree, those who are on the other side, those are the elitist, those are the extraordinary citizens, or something like that. Us ordinary folk, we know 
this is what we need. And so that is, that is simply a very divisive uh, language. So anyways, um, now I want to continue here uh, because there's a couple more speakers on this proposal. So let's see how far we get. Turn it over to Senator Tartaglione. Team. Thank you, Governor. I appreciate your steadfast commitment to raising the minimum wage, an issue which has always been my top priority. And I know the Pennsylvania's workers very much appreciate your advocacy too. As I've often said, it's been more than 14 years since the Pennsylvania General Assembly last raised the minimum wage. And it's been a dozen years since our minimum wage workers had been granted even a nominal raise. In that time, consumer prices have continued to climb, executive salaries have soared, and America's income inequality has become the worst in the industrial, industrialized world. Yet, here in Pennsylvania, our lowest paid workers must hold down two or three jobs just to make ends meet, just to pay for bare necessities like food, shelter, health care, and child care. Let's stop there. Uh, Senator Tartaglioni is mentioning Senate Bill 12 here. And she, she talks about executive salaries have soared. Again, we need some data on that. She mentions income inequality. Now, that's an important point to consider. All right. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just consider this following example. Let's say that there's a button in front of you. I tell you, I give you, I hand, I hand you this remote control. And I say, okay, this button, if you push this button, all the poorest people in the country will have their standard of living doubled. They will increase their standard of living by double. And you say, well, that's a, that's a, great, that's a great deal. Is there a catch? I said, yeah, there's a catch. The catch is this. The richest person, the richest people in the country, their standard of living goes up times 10. All right? So they go up, they become 10 times wealthier, and the poorest become twice as wealthier. Everyone becomes wealthier, but it's not entirely equal. Do you push it? Now, here's the situation. If you push it, you are going to contribute towards income inequality. The gap between rich and poor is going to increase, but everybody is still going to be better off. And that's a difficult question for a lot of people because there's this spirit of envy inside. And this goes right back to the parable that Jesus mentioned. The workers at the beginning of the day were envious of the workers at the end. In their mind, there's a gap between rich and poor. They can't stand for that. They can't stand to see somebody else do better and be blessed by God than, than them, even if everybody is getting paid, even if everybody is doing well. So this is meant to highlight the envious nature that's inside of us. Uh, it's very evil. It's very dark. And this whole idea of income inequality, that's not a problem necessarily. There's going to be differences in income. There, there simply is. Not everyone's going to get paid the same. Different skills, different work ethic, different health, different gifts, different desires. Okay? So, so to, to say that you want income to be equal, it's to live in a dream world. And it is, it's completely contrary to God's law and the way he's designed things. Nothing is wrong with inequality of income. It just depends on how, why it's unequal. Is it because... 
there is cheating going on? Is it because there are people breaking God's law? Is that why there's income inequality? Or is it because it's we're following the rules just fine, but people are different? Well, we need to answer that question. Then she goes on to talk about how lowest paid workers have to hold two or three jobs. Well, here's the question. Are these full-time jobs? You know, what if, what if, just just hypothetically, what if 10 years ago when we passed the minimum wage law, that first one, or the, the most recent one, that those, those people got, got their hours cut and now they have to, now they're working part-time jobs. What if they're working three part-time jobs? Um, they can't do one full-time job because of the minimum wage laws, but they can do three part-time jobs. So maybe, maybe part of it is the result of government intrusion and government uh, bad decisions. All right. So there's that. And also what's the standard of living? You know, is someone holding two or three jobs because they have a house that they can't afford and that they should probably downsize, but they refuse to do so? I mean, you have to consider personal choices in the matter, too. What's their standard of living? That's those are details we have to have to have. All right, let's continue. Often, even in those circumstances, families still end up on the short end of the at the end of their months with their bills in this context. Raising the minimum wage is more than an economic issue. It is a moral issue. Therefore, raising the minimum wage, as the governor has described, and as I have proposed in Senate Bill 12, is prudent and urgent. A preponderance of academic and scientific evidence informs us that raising the minimum wage will benefit the Commonwealth, and especially our lowest paid workers. Research conducted right here in Pennsylvania and across the country shows that incremental and judicious raises in the minimum wage will improve medium wages without sacrificing employment. Well, again, I'd like to say prove your work, prove it, show your work. I mean, you have all this research, but you need to, you need to share that with us because um, I, don't, I don't see the connection there. You know, I think there's a lot of underlying assumptions going into those equations. Raising the minimum wage improves equity for women and minorities. Okay, so here comes the magical equity term. Here we go. So now she's bringing out the the equality of outcome, not opportunity. Um, again, this is this is that divisive language I'm talking you about. It's assuming that there is oppression going on and that the government is here to stop it. Just you got to watch out for this kind of stuff. It reduces the burden of taxpayer-funded social services, and it stimulates the economy through increased consumer spending. All right. Well, hey, woo. Okay. All right. All right. Reduces taxpayer-funded social services. I guess the assumption here is that if, and maybe this is what Governor Wolf was getting at with regards to reducing taxes, the, the assumption here is that since people get paid more money, they're not going to need you know, food stamps, welfare, housing assistance, da, 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 all those things. Unless their hours get cut or they get laid off. Well, then they're going to continue to use those services and not get paid anything. But it also won't help because if prices rise, then at the end of the day, they're not better off. Okay, so they're still going to not be able to afford the housing and the food and that they need. And they're still going to need government assistance. All right, great. And then let's talk about stimulating the economy by increasing consumer spending. That is one of the, look, 
the whole idea, I'm not saying that she's the only one that's saying this. This is, this is, I'm not picking on her. I'm saying that those who say that we can stimulate the economy by increasing spending. Honestly, that's like some of the dumbest stuff I've ever heard in my life. I mean, who says, who really believes that you spend more to make yourself more wealthy? And that's not how this works. Okay, it goes against any, even common sense, right? Like, <laughs> economy simply means house law, okay? Uh, oikonomos, all right? How, it's Greek for house law. So could you imagine if I'm, you know, I sit down with my wife, like, listen, honey, we're going to stimulate our household and increase our wealth by spending a lot more money. What do you think about that? No. That's just a, that's a really worldly wicked way of looking at things and and by the way it doesn't even matter because spending's not going to go up if people have to have their hours cut or if they lose their jobs or if prices increase that's not going to help okay that does not simulate the economy so we need to really stop that nonsense let's continue raising the minimum wage as we have proposed will help us address the rampant poverty in our commonwealth rampant poverty i mean this is such high language here, rampant poverty. Can you give us some numbers on that? All right, let's continue. Which has been well documented and will directly benefit more than a million Pennsylvania families. Furthermore, raising the minimum wage is endorsed by an overwhelming majority of Pennsylvanians. All indications are that public support continues to grow as median wages lag behind inflation and his minimum wage remains frozen in time. Okay. <laughs> Endorsed by overwhelming majority. Well, public support is not indicative of truth or morality, by the way. I mean, it could be based on a misunderstanding of wages. If, if, the, if the average Pennsylvanian does not understand the concept, well, then, then, then they're, they're going to make a bad decision. So, uh, you know, and even though the minimum wage is frozen in time, that doesn't mean the wages are, like I said. If you were 10 years ago making 725, I highly doubt that now 10 years later you're still making 725. So your wages are probably not frozen in time. All right, continue a little bit further. Pennsylvania is far more unique in terms of this widespread public support. Just last week, a prominent national poll found that 83% of Americans want a higher minimum wage and half said they'd support at least $13 this year. It is with this mandate from the American people that the U.S. House of Representatives is now considering minimum wage legislation on the federal level. The Raise the Wage Act of 2021 would put our nation on a path to $15 an hour. Members of the Pennsylvania Senate Democratic Caucus and I will soon be sending a letter to Pennsylvania's congressional delegation urging them to support the new Raise the Wage Act. That said, it is incumbent upon us here in Pennsylvania to take matters into our own hands. We can do that by advancing and adopting minimum wage legislation, such as I am proposing in Senate Bill 12. My bill would raise the rate to $12 this year and would further raise it in annual increments of 50 cents until it reaches $15 in 2027. From that point, the rate would be tied to the consumer price index, adjusting automatically each year 
based on inflation. In addition, Senate Bill 12 would eliminate the sub-minimum wage for tip earners and would repeal preemption, thereby allowing local governments to raise the minimum wage in their jurisdiction to meet the needs of local workers. First thing here, uh, rate the rate. Let's go back to the consumer price index issue. I, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that would make it a nightmare for businesses. So, so at least now they, they know that the minimum wage is going to increase, and it's going to increase 50 cents per year till 2027. So they can kind of predict a little bit. But now you're saying that after that, you want you want it to be based on the consumer price index, which changes every year based on. The, based on inflation. Well, that could be unpredictable because inflation is not constant, okay? It, it, it does adjust and, and, and varies, right? You know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a wave, if you will. Now, it'll make it even harder to plan because a business owner is not going to know exactly how much the minimum wage is going to change the next year. So I think that's going to increase the chance of having less stable jobs and less um, steady jobs and prices. It will increase uncertainty, and, and that will make businesses more cautious and less likely to expand or hire new workers. This is too unstable and too unpredictable. Now, then she goes on to say about local governments. Uh, she wants to propose that a local government can change the minimum wage in their domains for, you know, like tip earners and stuff like that. And this, this is very interesting. Why not do that for all of it? I mean, if we're going to do this, if you really want the government to get involved, why not just let it be local all the time? I mean, why even make it a state state minimum wage? Why not just give all townships, all municipalities, the authority to make their own minimum wages as they see fit? I mean, she apparently she thinks it's a good idea for restaurants and, and sub-minimum wage earners. Well, why not just make it for everybody? I don't understand why it's good. You know, that's that part is good for locals, local communities and local government, but everything else has to be statewide. Again, it doesn't. That doesn't make any sense. And finally, Senate Bill 12 would strengthen enforcement of Pennsylvania's wage laws. It would triple the penalties for those who violate the Minimum Wage Act, and it would grant the Department of Labor and Industry authority to take legal action against violators and to recover damages owed to employees. Governor, I thank you once again for prioritizing a fair and more equitable minimum wage and for supporting our lowest paid workers and their families. All right. And of course, you know, the, 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 the end of that bill is the, basically the sword of the government. You know, triple the penalties for those who fail to act. You know, this is, this is the sort of coercion. This is how the government works. Like everyone, people think that the government is just nice and, you know, we're just trying to help people out. No, the whole point is that the, the, the civil authorities bear the sword. That's the only way they know how to do things. And it's okay when you do it in the right domain, like they have a job to do. Their job is to wield the sword and to punish evil. But this is not punishing evil. This, this is doing evil with the sword. And the state, the government points a gun at the workers and the employers and says, that, you know, this much shall be paid and no less. And that is simply not the duty of the civil magistrate. And, and it just goes to show that all they have is coercion um, and they're using it wrongly. For this particular case. Now I'd like to introduce uh, State Representative Patty Kim, who has been a great partner for many years in our effort to raise the minimum wage. Representative. 
Thank you, Senator Tartaglione. It's so great to have you as a partner and a strong advocate in the Senate as we continue to fight this fight. And Governor Wolf, thank you so much again for making this one of your top priorities and including a $15 minimum wage in your budget. My bill, House Bill 345, along with Representative Kinsey's bill, would mirror your proposal as well as the senators. All right. So now we've moved on from Senator Tartaglioni to Representative Patty Kim. So you got Governor Wolf having his proposal matched by Senate Bill 12. And now Patty Kim is going to talk about House Bill 345, which is it's fairly short. We only got a few minutes left. So I'm just going to go all the way through, even though you know it's a little bit of a long podcast today. But it's going to be some interesting stuff to consider towards the end. Now, the nonprofit Big Brothers Big Sisters holds a crazy fundraiser every year called Over the Edge. You donate to their important organization, and then they give you an experience of scaling down a tall building for fun. I decided to sign up. What I'll never forget was the experience of sitting on the edge of an 18-story building, looking down before repelling. I was shaking. My heart was pounding. My blood pressure was probably through the roof. It was so stressful, and I wanted to get this over with and back on solid ground. I recall this experience because this is how many of my constituents live every day, not on top of a building, but on the edge financially. To be more specific, hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvanians with children who make less than $15 an hour live like this, on the edge with no margin of error and not knowing if they're going to fall. This is a very emotional appeal here. Again, we need some more data. Like, where's the data? And there's no margin of error. I mean, you have to look at all the variables, though. It's not just the wage. What about expenditures? How are they, ha- how are they being stewards of their money? What's, their st- what's the standard of living that they're trying to achieve? And is it realistic? Does it match what they're able to achieve? These are, these are difficult questions. I'm not saying that everybody is making bad decisions. But, I mean, I know that I'm personally I've not always made good decisions in, in what I should spend and what I should buy and how I should live. But that's part of the equation. And you can't just solve it by changing the minimum wage. It is an unsustainable way to live. Now, imagine your job requires you to work in person during a pandemic. Folks had to leave their children and their grandchildren home to work at the grocery store, the uh, pharmacy, gas stations, or daycare centers. They came home fearful every day of spreading the virus to their families. Okay, so now we bring in, bring in the pandemic. See, because of COVID, now we need to pay them more. All right, well, first of all, let's just be clear. Who shut down the schools and the daycares? Like, why are the children at home? The answer is the government. She's not going to ask that question. Now, who also shut down the economy? Uh, the government did. Ah, okay. So, you're telling us that... The government made a decision that had a ripple effect and that has some negative consequences. But now you're saying that the government is going to solve that problem. So the government caused the problem partially, maybe mostly, and then the government is now going to come and rescue us and solve the problem. This seems seems a little bit weird, seems a little fishy going on here. And this just goes into the whole idea of the government always thinks that they're going to be the savior even though quite often they make things worse. Now, there's also that whole idea, okay, let's just talk about that fearful spread of the virus. 
But the market responded, right? Because now Amazon, they have their services. Grocery stores do delivery to your door. There's DoorDash. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of things. The market responded. The government didn't didn't force Amazon to do it. The government didn't, you know, uh, fund DoorDash or create DoorDash. Like these are things that the market created. And so now, even if someone is fearful of bringing home the virus, there are jobs, and the jobs have adjusted to protect them. Like people will do that if people are afraid. They will protect themselves, and the workers will do that too. You don't need the government to do that. DoorDash, Amazon, all those things, um, Zoom, you know, Microsoft Teams, you know, all these programs—they all developed without the government even doing anything about it. Just, just naturally, they were—they were able to respond faster than the government has. So again, I don't know how the government is the solution here. If that was me having to endure all of that. I would break, but the good news is we can help break this stressful cycle. We can give people more support by adding to their hourly wages. This is not going to make them rich or solve all of their problems, but it'll give them a little bit more slack in life. Unless they have their hours cut or they lose their job. Oh well. The governor has many ways to support these families other than raising the minimum wage, like investing in public schools, making college more affordable with new scholarships. More daycare subsidies and expanding programs to help train people with the right skills for jobs that are looking for people now. Okay, she's bringing up all these more spending, more spending, public, you know, investing in public schools, affordable college. Wait, how's that going to happen? You know, daycare subsidies. Whoa, 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 whoa! This is ton of spending. I'm glad this is not part of this bill, but she's mentioning that there's so much more that the government could and should be doing. And that scares me because because that money does not come out of thin air. That's not how this works. I support these initiatives. They will help my constituents in the long term. But what we need to do now is to raise the wage floor. Let's not go back to the pre-COVID status quo of seven twenty-five an hour. Bold changes are needed to turn this economy around and will benefit all workers. I will also be sending a letter to Congress with my colleagues to support the delegation to urge the delegation to raise the minimum wage at the federal level. We are working all avenues and will not let up the pressure until we get this done. Ooh, some strong, strong language. Let's let's be bold. Let's not go back to the way things were before COVID. Ah, so again, now COVID is the excuse for making some serious changes. And guess what? All those changes are increased government. Increase government spending, increase government power, increase government control. And well, how comes we don't go the other way? Ah,、oh, it's never, it's never the other way. Okay, so bold changes. Why are bold changes needed? Why is it always the government that has to solve the problem? What makes us think that those changes won't make things worse? So we'll continue. Now I have the honor of introducing the next speaker. He's a small business owner in my district who supports paying his employees a living wage. Peter Leonard is the CEO of Little Amps Coffee in Harrisburg. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for the introduction, Representative Kim. Thank you, Senator Tortaglione and Governor Wolf, and the governor's office for inviting me to join this important conversation.、Uh, as Representative Kim said, my name is Peter Leonard, and I do own Little Amps Coffee in Harrisburg. We are a specialty coffee roaster who have been serving our community for almost a decade. Um, and we care deeply about our employees and the well-being of our community. 
For that reason, we strongly believe that Pennsylvania is way overdue in raising the minimum wage. All right. Well, look, Peter Leonard, I'm, gr- I'm glad you have a, a specialty coffee roasters that's been in business for 10 years. And I imagine that 10 years ago, the first person you hired, that person is probably making more money now than they were 10 years ago. So, okay. And of course, you, uh, business owner, are free to pay people whatever you want. And if you want to pay them $15, $20, $35 an hour, you're welcome to do so. I don't understand what the problem here is. So, And, and maybe, I don't know where his coffee shop is at, but if it's in uh, a very expensive area, um, I don't know, Philadelphia, Harrisburg, whatever the case may be, I mean, maybe the cost of living is higher in the city. So, you know, your prices are higher. You can afford that. You can pay your workers more versus a little mom pop shop in uh, in the in a rural part of uh, Pennsylvania. So, again, that that's something we need to keep in mind um, in mind here. I represent workers in the service and hospitality industry, most of whom make up a large portion of Pennsylvanians earning less than twelve dollars an hour. We can't ignore that many of those affected are also people of color and people from marginalized communities. Okay. This is frustrating because this entire time I have not said anything about race. This is not about race or marginalized communities. See, they make it about that. See, they they want that to be the case. For them, that has to be the case. They have to tug on the heartstrings and they have to cry oppression, oppression, oppression. But look, I'm simply proposing we look at what God says about economy. We look at some of the logical uh, um, uh, results from from raising minimum wages and things that come from that, and the second, third, and fourth order effects. This has nothing to do with race, but they make it about race, and that's the problem. Just out there trying to earn a living wage. I believe an increased minimum wage will have long-lasting positive effects on our local economy, equipping people with more spending money to put back into their community. If you, Peter, if you want people to earn a living wage, then you hire them. You're free to do that. Why don't you hire them? If you have these customers that are lamenting that they're not getting paid hardly anything um, at the uh, at the hospital or wherever they work, then offer them a job. Maybe if they can make fifteen bucks an hour, or twelve bucks an hour as a coffee, you know, a coffee person, you know, a coffee server, then do that. That would be way better, right? I mean, you can do that. You you do something. I mean, you have the freedom. As a small business owner with strong ties to our community, I know that this increase will have a positive effect on our staff and the people that we serve. Following this election cycle, we saw so many Pennsylvanians fighting to get what they want. But if we don't want a living wage for all of them, then what's the point? Because not all jobs are equal and not all labor is equal value. As I've mentioned several times, not every job is worth $12 an hour. That's a simple fact. If I go to my neighbors and ask his teenage son to mow mow my lawn, I might not want to pay him $12 an hour. Okay, maybe it's 10. Okay, so <laughs> it comes down to valuation. So why does the government say that all labor, all work is worth at least $12 an hour? No, that that is purely subjective and they are not equipped to make that decision anymore and they're definitely not more equipped than the uh, employer and the employee. The buyer and the seller, those are the individuals that can make the valuation and come to a negotiated agreement. Thank you all for your time. Governor, back to you. All right. So that's the, uh, that's the end because they're going to go on to um, offer audience questions and, and things like that. And we've already gone pretty long here. But look, at the end of the day, 
the minimum wage hurts. The government is telling employers that they can only hire people whose labor is up to that value. I mean, think about that. If you, if you have that minimum wage like that, you're telling a business owner that you have to pay people for a certain value of, of labor, okay? So what does that mean? It means that unskilled workers are hurt because when, when push comes to shove, the business owner is going to only hire the people whose labor matches that $12 valuation, right? So they're going to get the highest possible skilled labor, the best bang for their buck, if you will, because they have to pay it. They have to pay $12. So now who gets the short end of the stick? Who gets cut out of this whole equation? Unskilled workers, the high school students, okay? People, people like that who are college students who are just trying to get a little bit of a job while they're going through college. They don't have that many skills, okay? Maybe this is their first job, but they don't have much to bring to the table, okay? And so, but their labor is just simply not up to that. It's not going to be worth $12, $15 an hour, so they won't get the job, okay? So it hurts, it hurts them, all right? So the government is declaring that they must be paid at a higher value than their labor actually is. And simply because you you force, simply because you declare this is the minimum wage, that doesn't make someone's labor that much more valuable. I mean, you can say it all you want to, you can declare it all you want to, but it will not become reality. That person does not have skills, and so their labor is their labor. And the valuation um, is not just going to meet that, and so the business owner is not going to hire them. And the government here never thinks about the second and third order effects. And this is the violation It's all a violation of the biblical law regarding hiring workers. Um, The Bible makes it clear. Employers are allowed to make agreements with the workers. And and the only role of the government is to enforce the contract, to make sure that everyone keeps their promises. Um, And what, what this whole minimum wage law is and what these folks are proposing, they're basically saying that Jesus was wrong to suggest that an owner could use their money as they see fit. And like I said, the minimum wage alienates and marginalizes unskilled labor because only the most skilled individuals will get the jobs of that value. Everyone else is out of luck and out of work. Uh, and the funny thing is, like these folks, they make it sound like the minimum wage increases is only beneficial. It's only ever good, right? But they know there's a cost. They don't say it, but there's always a cost to a decision that you make because if there's no negative result, if there's no problem, or, or cost to raising the minimum wage, well, why not make it $100 per hour minimum wage? I mean, why not just end poverty tomorrow? You know, but they know that deep down inside that if they did that, it would be catastrophic. So for them, it's easier to drink poison one drop at a time rather than the whole bottle. But that doesn't change the fact that it's still poison that we're drinking. Okay, just because we drink it one, drunk, one drop at a time doesn't make it good. It's still a problem. It's still bad. So the, 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 it's the sad thing, though, is that the government creates problems, and then it puts itself forward as the hero who's going to solve those problems. But the government will never admit that they are the ones that contributed to the problems, and the government won't allow other areas like, oh, I don't know, the market or the family or the church to find a solution. The government says, you know, we're here to help, even though 
we're the ones that kind of put you in this situation. So anyways, it's uh, it's been long enough. It's been a, a, I hope I hope that you found this to be useful. I know it's kind of longer than normal uh, episode, but there was a lot to cover and a lot of stuff to unpack. And, and, and with these uh, with these statements that these folks are making, just a lot of loaded statements, uh, full of emotion and a lot of assumptions. And and I just encourage you, listener, you have to when you hear stuff like this, you like you have to think through it. Like, why are they saying this? What are their assumptions? And what are the ripple effects of what they're saying? And that's the only way we're going to be able to get uh, to get beyond uh, the surface level arguments. So. Anyways, I hope that uh, this was a blessing to you. If you want to follow up, respond, or offer any questions, suggestions, or maybe even corrections if I made some mistakes here, um, I'd love to get your feedback. Go on to Facebook and you can search for the podcast at uh, Governed by God and you can message me there. Also on uh, Twitter um, or you can email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, anyways, just go go to those places and, and feel free to message me. And of course, another important thing would be simply, you know, share this episode with other people, post it on Twitter, Facebook, give the thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things will help to get uh, this out to more folks, which is really uh, what I'm trying to do. So again, thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. And God bless.